Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Token Agency is a proven full-service blockchain startup accelerator, helping launch only the best and brightest projects in crypto. With a project acceptance rate of less than 1%, let their team of experienced advisors and marketing specialists build gravity around your company. To learn about their top projects and more, check out tokenagency.com. My guest today for Unconfirmed is Ryan Selkis, founder and CEO of Masari. We are here at the Multicoin Summit in Half Moon Bay, California at the fancy Ritz-Carlton with beautiful views. And we've had kind of an interesting morning of panel discussions and debates. And speaking of debates, Ryan, I saw you jumped into a debate that Vitalik Buterin was having with Pete Rizzo of Coindesk on Twitter. Vitalik critiqued Coindesk for publishing an article that linked to a scam that uh, a scam Omise Go site and said that he was boycotting Coindesk's consensus conference because of its price tag. This is, I know, your your former employer. So I wanted to get your take on the argument um, between Vitalik and Pete. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's always fun to catch up. And as you know, I generally don't shy away from controversy. So um, kind of a natural discussion point. Um, you know, I, I think the discussion between Vitalik and, and Coindesk kind of speaks to the broader issue of how do you fund sustainable journalism? And I thought, uh, obviously, the article that Coindesk came out with, with the link to fraudulent site, was very unfortunate. And I guarantee they regretted the error. I thought the reaction and the immediate assumption that there was bias involved in the coverage and kind of the litany of, of arguments that Vitalik made against Coindesk was probably unfair. And there's a few different reasons for that. One, events are probably one of the few tried and true mechanisms for funding sustainable journalism, right? Um, you look at this with TechCrunch, Recode, any number of, of trade journals especially um, are able to make much, much more money from marquee events than they are from advertising, right? And the advertising model is obviously fraught with problems as well. And I generally think that Coindesk has done a pretty good job of steering clear from some of the very worst of the ads. Now, there's a few that kind of slip through many in in the industry and, and on crypto Twitter, especially where the troll armies live, have called them out for advertisements. And they don't actually recognize that the advertisements they're getting delivered are coming from something like AdSense based on their browser history and are not even served up directly from Coindesk through these you know first party relationships with these you know, token sale advertisers. And so I think, you know, there's a couple of problems. One, it's just a, a fundamental lack of understanding of how the ad driven uh, journalism model works. And two, I, I do think that there's a certain lack of appreciation for what it costs to produce high quality content. And it begs the bigger question of, in an industry that's moving this fast with as much complexity and as much expert disagreement as there is, how can you reliably create an information resource that gets better over time and is viewed as objective and ultimately is as accurate as possible or as close to um, the current objective reality as possible, because as you know, you know these projects change their tune every other day, um, and projects pivot, 
new projects are added every single you know week. And, and I remember even back in 2017, uh, before I left Coindesk, uh, we would get people bitching left and right about not covering their ICO. And part of it is you just can't tell what's what's fake and, and what's not, because there there was so much garbage coming out into the market and so much get rich rich quickism, uh, it's very, very difficult to parse signal from noise. So I actually think that in the future, uh, particularly with crypto, the most interesting information business is going to be curation of medium articles uh, from experts, because I think the very best content and analysis right now in crypto lives on medium. The best news resource is still Coindesk. And why do you think Coindesk doesn't spend its resources on investigating some of the, these scams? I mean, refusing to cover an ICO is one thing, but then not spending the time to kind of ferret out some of the bad actors is another. Well, I, I guarantee that they are investing quite heavily in, in editorial. Um, it's expensive to build out a news desk because it, you know, for media businesses, it tends to be a loss leader, but they've been staffing like crazy. Um, and I'm not privy to all the details internally, but... When I left, I think we had four or five full-time journalists. And in the last year, that's more than doubled. And they continue to add new ones every month, it seems, every week, maybe even. Um, but I, I'd be very curious to see what the staff looks like at consensus in a couple of weeks. And do you think the fact that they're owned by DCG has any bearing on that? Absolutely not. Unless something has radically changed in the year since I left. You know, when, when we purchased the company at Digital Currency Group, the first thing that we did was put up Chinese walls between DCG and Coindesk. We physically relocated the offices. Uh, we broadcast our editorial policies. We had the editorial team add disclosures anytime there was a DCG portfolio company that was referenced. No introductions came directly from Barry or anyone in the investment team um, at DCG to editorial. That would create undue pressure. And when there was any top-down communication, it generally came through me. And I'm sure the same is probably true with current CEO, Kevin. So I think that is an easy, it makes for an easy target. I just think that it's inconveniently not true uh, for critics of, of, uh, of Coindesk. But, uh, you know, it brings up another point, which is how do you fund journalism without conflicts of interest, period? Because this is not just an issue with Coindesk, you know, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. And you are ultimately beholden to your advertisers and, and, and other business interests um, unless you very cleanly separate the editorial and the business teams. And, and, and I think that's the only way that you can actually build a brand like Coindesk that I personally believe is getting better over time. Even if I think, you know, like everybody and, and like any media outlet, um, there are you know, certainly articles that are cringeworthy or, or you disagree with, but the body of work has gotten consistently better over time. And it's fun to you know, criticize editors, uh, but no one actually tends to give Coindesk any credit. And there is a massive delta between Coindesk and the next best resource in terms of day-to-day -day coverage of the industry. And just to go back to your comment about conferences, you said that those were a good way for journalism to be funded. And that point came up in a recent Washington Post article by Megan McArdle. It was an opinion piece. And that sort of got into the crypto Twitter sphere as well. Absolutely. I saw Naval tweeting about that and people um, jumping on him. He told me at a, at a party where I saw him that uh, he actually he sort of misworded uh, his tweet mm -hmm. and wasn't trying to say that all journalism is opinion, but um, her column is opinion. And, you know, that was the context in which he had tweeted it. But I think he later deleted the tweet, so I don't have a record of it. But the point is that in her piece, she said that journalism needs new business models. Conferences is one that works. She also said paywalls work. And um, now you have this other idea about the curation. But how would that? So what's the funding model for that? Well, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so first of all, I think Naval's 
Right. I don't know. You know, he deleted, you know, that particular tweet. So I can't remember the exact wording, but the, the gist of it was basically traditional journalism is, is dead. Um, and and I actually would double down on that uh, and, and, and say it more explicitly. I think the top 10 percent of journalists, the true naturally gifted storytellers, the true investigative journalists will always have a place in, uh, in, in modern society, and they will find a way to monetize, whether it's through direct funding. You, know, you pay for a subscription to the New York Times. You pay for a subscription to Wired. There are high-value brands with great storytellers that know what they're talking about that, um, that can get by on, on a paywall-driven model. But for the most part, you know, the other 90% is just word vomit, right? And I think the average journalist, again, this is not all journalists, but the average journalist uh, is less uh, technically aware of the end subject matter. They write in a way that generally can be you know, either boring or, or just not as persuasive as maybe someone with more skin in the game. And ultimately just has to compete in a sea of information to get any type of attention. And, and that ends up being a race to the bottom where you're ultimately going to go with the stories that are, you know, listicles or, you know, top 10 lists or, or, you know, kind of some of the worst buzzfeedy type of, uh, you know, uh, content businesses that, that are out there. So the, the concept of re-architecting some of these models for journalism and for content in particular, I think is something that is, is potentially a really good end use case for, for, blockchain technology, and in particular, this concept of token curated registries. And the way that these TCRs work, I know I don't want to be redundant to the Brian Kelly interview, but the, the way that you know you can think about these TCRs is almost like a decentralized college admissions process where you have the board of trustees, they hired a, uh, an admissions council to only accept certain candidates onto their list that meet certain criteria and pay an application fee. And the goal is to preserve the integrity of the institution, which is really just the integrity of the credential that they're getting. So if you carry that model through and think about how could we create a decentralized credentialing process without that centralized governing body at the Ivy League institution or that centralized admissions council, you get a model where token holders can ultimately vote on who the applicants are to the list and, and, and ferret out weak from strong candidates. The reason this is really interesting in information-driven models is people are slowly coming around to the reality that Facebook and Google are the ultimate centralized curation engines that exist purely to sell you as a product. And I, I think we're finally starting to get to the point where people realize their attention has been getting hacked and they're getting dumber from reading online, quite frankly, um, for so long that more and more people are willing to pay for top quality content that they believe is actually going to help them synthesize information and, and learn a little bit more effectively. This isn't going to be for everyone. I don't think the existing models are going to disappear overnight, but you have more willingness to pay than I think you've had in, in quite a long time. And some of the token models that I think are interesting that are taking this approach, a project called Civil out of Consensus, which is working on a, a TCR approach towards curating newsrooms and trying to ferret out weak or, or outright you know, uh, libelous journalists. Another one is uh, called Unlock, which is a project by Julian Genestow, who's formerly the lead engineer at Medium. And you know he's envisioned a discount token that will hopefully incentivize more readers to share high-quality content and then ultimately reward them and uh, create an unlocking mechanism so that you can access information that might be behind multiple paywalls, almost like a Netflix for content. Um, and those are just you know a couple of the early examples. I don't know that anyone has, uh, has solved this kind of two-sided marketplace problem yet, but I would say 
we're going to see a lot more experimentation. And I really do think something's going to stick if for no other reason than people are so uh, frustrated with the existing ad-driven attention hacking model of content. Yes. And speaking on that note, we're going to take a pause for the ads right now. Token Agency is a proven full-service blockchain startup accelerator, helping launch only the best and brightest projects in crypto. With a project acceptance rate of less than 1%, let their team of experienced advisors and marketing specialists build gravity around your company. Today's highlighted project is Signum Capital and 500 Startups Backed Physical, spelled with an F. Physical is the world's first code-complete, fully functional, decentralized location data marketplace. Founded in 2014, Physical is an established business with live customers and revenue, selling over 15 billion location data points per month to publicly traded companies. Join the whitelist and learn more at physical.org. That's F-Y-S-I-C-A-L.org. And check out tokenagency.com to learn more. I'm speaking with Ryan Selkis of Masari. To go back to the token curated registries and applying them to journalism, in this age of fake news where we've seen that the crowd sometimes just believes what they want to believe, how does that apply to the token curated registry, or not registry, but token curated content model where you're relying on people to sort of upvote things? What, what you need to believe is that in any token curated registry, the long-term value of a given list as an information resource, as an intrinsically valuable information resource, will grow over time. And TCRs are very binary, right? You can have one that is valuable that gets hijacked by, by actors that are nefarious or just want to continue to spread fake news. And, and what will happen is the value of that registry as an information resource will disappear overnight. It'll, the, the value will just plummet. So the the concept behind a TCR really relies on the majority of economically motivated actors in the system to continue to hold for the long term, uh, believe in the intrinsic value of the list, take seriously their responsibility to vote on and and curate new admitted candidates to the list, and ultimately ward off attacks simply by getting too big to fail in some cases. So the, the stakeholders of the TCR matter quite a bit, not just from a financial standpoint, but I would argue that some of the healthier TCRs are going to have stakeholders, token holders, that have strategic reasons for holding a token because they value the governance rights in the system. What if you end up with teams where it's you know a room of propagandists who are very financially motivated to ensure that their propaganda gets out and they use that? Yeah, my, my point is that might be an effective attack vector, but if they're successful, the value of that list will plummet to zero pretty much immediately, as soon as it becomes obvious that this is a fraudulent resource of information. So you'd ultimately want a very high-profile stakeholder base of endorsers of a token-curated registry, in this case in the media model, that have stake and say, through their you know personal brands or their, their personal signals, this is a valuable information resource because we're backing it and we are one of many other credible backers and governors of the system that have no reason to perpetuate, you know, fake news and and propaganda um, as part of this registry. Well, in the way that I phrased that, I made it sound like it was just a small group of people. But as we saw with the fake news thing, a small group of people can kind of harness a large crowd behind them. So don't you think that we could end up with... I mean, that's not necessarily true. That, That was effective because Facebook is a centralized entity that has a profit motive that is at odds with its user base. Um, and that's to sell advertising at pretty much at all costs, which is what we saw. In the token curated registry model, you're actually coming up with a new way to monetize 
um, credible information resources and ensure that high quality journalism is rewarded because you're you're paying for it right you're you are paying some fee some stake uh, in order to ensure that the information that you're receiving isn't as fraught with errors and propaganda as, as what you would see through a centralized entity that really just cares about pushing more clicks and ad dollars and I also wanted to ask you so about the token curated registry I know that you're about to launch Masari. Tell us what what that is going to look like and when you're going to launch. So we're taking a very radical approach of building product and community first before we even think about a token. Um, And I'm being a little bit glib about that, but uh, there's a couple of reasons. One, I just generally think that most of the projects that are out there today are trying to raise money to build products. And very few are figuring out what problem are we really solving and which community are we building it for first. Much of the development in the last year and a half, with some exceptions, but much of the development in the last year and a half has been, if we build it, they will come. And I I think that's really problematic because if you look back at the most successful projects that have built strong communities, that have built valuable token economies, they've been ones that started very ethos and community first. That's Bitcoin, that's Ether. I would put 0x in that camp as well. And they generally think about the token, not as an an afterthought, but a, a feature uh, that makes the rest of the system click a little bit more efficiently. So when we roll out the Masari data library towards the end of June, it is going to be available almost like a Wikipedia for crypto assets that anybody will be able to view and, and, and access and ultimately write to in order to get you know, certain information about these uh, various projects. That only gets you so far, right? So, so the problem with uh, the crypto economy right now is not a lack of information, it's a lack of self-attestation on the part of these token project owners. When do they change their monetary supply? When is there an insider transaction? Um, where do the white paper and token sale documents live? What deals were the insiders given uh, early on? Things like that, um, that in the public securities market are pretty much table stakes in, in, in terms of disclosures and just doesn't exist today because we argue these aren't securities, they're consumer tokens. At the end of the day, the the SEC and kind of the global regulators, they don't really care, I don't think, if these are securities or not. What they want to do is they want to protect consumers. And I think some of the behavior in the market has been more predatory. So the token curator registry, wrap that, that line of thinking, incentivizes these teams that otherwise are not beholden to any single global regulatory body or global self-regulatory body, gives them an economic incentive to actually participate in a whitelist that signals to the broader community that they are above board with certain best practices and um, and disclosure uh, regimes. And what I think that will do, it serves a self-regulatory function, but over time, if you can get critical mass... It should help the projects uh, streamline their banking relationships, uh, facilitate onboarding at various exchanges or marketplaces, and just give a general aura of credibility that they might otherwise struggle to get if some competitive projects are on the whitelist and they are not. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.